are going to look, uh, well, beginning today, we're going to begin in uh, the book of Philippians. So if you'd uh, turn there, we're still going to be uh, spending a good bit of time here in uh, 1 Samuel this morning. But I want to start with the book of, uh, book of Philippians, chapter 1. And if you would, look at verses 9 and 10. Philippians 1, verses 9 and 10. And use this to hopefully pull our thoughts together where we're headed today. Paul says there in verse 9, And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Now, of course, this is Paul's prayer for the believers at the church at Philippi. And in this prayer, he is, um, you know, first thing I want us to see here is that this prayer is for somebody who is in 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 a state of growth, that your love may abound more and more, that it would increase. And that's somewhat of what we were trying to look at in the books of the kings with uh, Saul and David in particular, but we also looked at the life of Samuel and talking about the idea of growth and movement. Um, you remember my illustration last week? I just went over here and sat down. You know, we talked about the passivity of uh, the word believe and the aorist tense. That is, I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I trust Him as my Savior, and I have the privilege then, as it were, uh, if I so choose, uh, to do nothing. That's all a work of God. That is not a work on man's part in any way whatsoever, but to believe. But then, the Bible spends most of its time teaching us and instructing us regarding our faith following the accepting of Christ as our Savior. And that's an active faith. You absolutely cannot sit back and just relax and enjoy that kind of faith. That is a faith that labors. That is a faith that strives and works. Here, he's wanting our love to abound more and more in knowledge. And that's our familiar word for knowledge here, gnosis, epinosis, in full knowledge. So there's a knowledge to be gained in reading the Scriptures. But there's a fuller knowledge, or we can express it at this little prefix, epi, means we can, we can address it in a number of ways. We can say a higher knowledge, a deeper knowledge, a fuller knowledge, uh, a more mature knowledge. In other words, we're adding on to. There's more than just the basic foundation of knowing and understanding. And he says there that they would do this more and more in, their love would abound more and more in a mature knowledge, a full knowledge, and in judgment or discernment. The ability to discern, (coughs) excuse me, the other, (coughs) the ability to have perception concerning the scriptures. Well, in dealing with what the, the subjects that I have been talking about, from the books of the kings, has really been that right there. We've been talking about perceiving, the ability to discern from the Scriptures what God is trying to teach us and tell us 
instruct us about. And that's what we've been looking at in those scriptures. So in verse 10, he says then that ye may approve things that are excellent. And that word approve uh, is, our, is a very standard word. It means to, uh, to test it, to show its value, to show its worth. It's approved through the method of testing. And so he says that you may approve those things that are excellent, that you may test those things that are of value and that you might approve of them. Things that are excellent, or some translations say uh, that you may approve of things that differ. And when he talks about differing, he's talking about then the, the uh, spiritual and moral discernment and perception to choose that which is better. To choose that which is the higher, that has greater value, of greater benefit. Look um, over in Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. And you have almost the same phrase being used there. And let's look at verse 18. Thank you, Brother Harris. There it says in verse 17, he says, Behold, thou art called a Jew and restest in the law and makest thy boast of God and knowest his will and approvest the things that are more excellent. That's virtually the same phrase as Paul uses over in the book of Philippians. Being instructed out of the law. So he's saying approving there those things that are more excellent. That's what we're striving for. That ought to be our goal and our purpose, to move towards the things that are more excellent. Well, as we confront the world, as we walk out those doors, we meet all kinds of things out there in the world that are working against us, that are working to destroy us. And it demands discernment. It demands perception or judgment, the ability to judge what is good and what is not good what is beneficial for me or more valuable for, for me than something that is less value, valuable. may not be wrong, see, but it's less valuable. does not have the greater approval. And our purpose here in moving towards a love that abounds more and more and a movement towards maturity is that we might gain that ability. And that requires spiritual perception. That's why you can kind of, you know, I kind of picture the scriptures in my mind sometimes as a, like a, a body of water. It's one thing to, <clears throat> to look at the surface of the water from above. You can see, a, you know, a good many things. Or you might be able to put something <clears throat> on the uh, surface of the water, a lens or, or a mask, and look down below and see a good many things. But it's another thing to put a mask on and get down below the surface and, as it were, mine the depths to see what's really down there. And we had a good experience of that a year or so ago. <clears throat> we wanted to go, took a little vacation down to Florida, and my son and, well, actually two sons-in-law and daughter wanted to get uh, their scuba license, and they talked me into doing that. So, and I didn't much like it either, <laughs> especially at the beginning. That was all over. I'll gladly show you my card here. It's, it's got it right here. So I'll, and I've never been since, and I probably never go again. I told him that right up front. I said, I'll probably never, ever use this. Uh, but there it is, scuba diver, you know. It got my name on it and everything. I, I, 
um, see, you weren't down there. I mean, one time we were in this, uh, this uh, what was the name of that place? Springs. Anybody know that? There's a well-known spring place. That, Vortex. Vortex Springs, that's it, yeah. We were down there. It's just nice, clear water. And this water started coming in my mask, and I went, and you know, you're not supposed to go shooting to the top. Well, I did anyway, because I didn't like that thing. And I went hustling over to the pier, and I grabbed a hold, and the instructor, I, I no more got there, and he was right behind me, you know, and don't do that. And Seth was, had grabbed a hold of my foot, and he was trying to hold me down, and I was working hard to get back up. Uh, and I got away from him, too. Uh, but once it was all over now, once I got, once I got accustomed to it, and I actually did, uh, get a better mask, and I found out proper equipment is a real key. We bought the cheapest thing around, you know, just to get through, and it didn't work for me. Uh, and that, I made it through. I made it through. But you know, when you're down below, you can see a whole lot more, and there's a lot of interesting things there. Well, the Bible is more than just an interesting book. When you mine below the surface, when you go for that epi knowledge, that deeper knowledge, there are things there that are vital to our life. There are things there that God has revealed to those who are seeking, and you have to want to go below the surface to see what's there. And God will only give it to you if you actually do it. It's one thing for somebody to tell you what's above the surface of the water, you know, if you're up above, and to tell you, you know, here's what's down below, here's what you're going to see. That's one thing. But then for you to go down there and do it for yourself, that's a whole other experience altogether. Well, that's the same thing with Scripture. It's one thing for a teacher of the Word or a preacher of the Word to tell you what it says. It's another thing altogether for you to go down there yourself and to let God speak to you directly and to mine His Word, as it were, to feed your own soul. And that's what we've been trying to focus on as we look at the books of the kings and the lives of Saul and the lives of David, and we're going to look at a couple others here this morning and how they affected David's life and their relationship to him. Um, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 now for a moment. Before we go back there, I want to look at a couple other passages. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, there's a well-known passage there that you're familiar with, verses 27, 28, uh, 29. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. Catch on to that thing. Confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are. That, and there's a purpose statement, see? That's a purpose now. That. No flesh should glory in his presence. And that's what we were saying about Saul. See, Saul operating in the flesh. No fleshly operation will ever take glory in the presence of God. It is not possible. The only glory that will be experienced in the presence of Christ is that which comes through the Spirit. And it comes by means of God's Spirit working in harmony with our spirit as we obey him, then, and only then, will we know and experience glory in his presence. The irony of it is, is God does not choose the mighty in this world. God does not choose 
the most knowledgeable, the best educated, the wealthiest. He chooses those that are the base things of this world, the weak, and those that have are, are simple in appearance. That's why I'm glad he takes bald heads, see? <laughs> I'm glad. All right. Um, <clears throat> so what are we trying to say here? The, 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 we're looking at the ability. We're looking at the capacity of a person, God's people, the saint of God, the one who is fulfilling, fulfilling Hebrews 11.6, who is seeking after God, the one that he earnestly desires to reward. It, it, it's to that person that God uses to confound the wise. And it, it is this person who is most able to discern or to perceive or judge um, <clears throat> between those things that are most excellent or more excellent as opposed to those things which are harmful or hurtful. And so how does that come about? How do we get to that place? Well, one of the first places we want to start is the person who walks with him, who is in communion with or fellowship with the Lord. And that means not just on Sunday morning. That means in our daily walk. That means in how we conduct ourselves as we go about our duties and activities throughout the day and throughout the week. What we are as a person before a world that is watching us. Because, you know, they're, they're looking. My, uh, I, I was, <laughs> okay, this week, I'm getting off subject just a bit, but this week we took Seth over to get, help him get set up at school. And uh, we left on Thursday, turned around and came back on Friday over in Jackson. Got him set up in an apartment and so on. Then we drove on down to Memphis to spend uh, an evening with Jana and Jeff and went out to eat. And then we came back and guess what I did? We got back and it was late. We were running, running, running it seemed like the whole time. We got back. It was 10, 30, or 11 o'clock. We walked in the door. I went right in the bedroom, took my clothes off, crying right in bed. That was it. The rest of them stayed up for a while, and they went on checking on the Internet and um, some of these spaces like, you know, MySpace and MyFace and whatever else they got out there. <laughs> I don't know what they call that. You know, there's some bad... You know, there's some... They post... You know, there's, It's a big controversy right now. People posting their personal information out there. Their resumes and, and uh, just things about their personal lives and, and whatever. And, of course... You can go on there and access it and, and, and do, I guess, do whatever you want. That's the, that's the argument. Can, are they free to do whatever they want with that information? If you're just willing to put it out there for anybody to look at, you know, how are you going to control that? Well, they, were, they had looked up some names of people that I know and um, some really awful things out there, things that would really hurt you. If you were to go on one of those websites and start looking for people that you know, might shock you to find out, you know, what they really think, what their lives are like. The hurt and the pain that they're releasing and letting out for the whole world to know. Pictures on there like you wouldn't believe, that you would never, never imagine from that person. And so all I'm saying is, is that those are the kinds of people who are watching you and I. They're looking at the church 
and I'm speaking church, capital C, the church at large, and they're not getting answers. They're not, they're not finding out you know, what is life is about, why God put us here, what am I supposed to be doing with my life. And they've been down the road. You know, they've been to church. They've done that, as it were. In other words, they've done church and they didn't find it, they didn't find anything there. That's what we're trying to express here from God's Word. Is that God does have a purpose. He put us here for a reason. And we need to be fulfilling that purpose. There is a goal at the end. There is something towards which God is moving in history. And it will be accomplished. And we have all kinds of testimony in His Word about what He wants to accomplish, what He has done in the past. We have seen and know historically the fulfillment of that which He has promised, giving us every reason to believe that He is going to fulfill it exactly in the future as He said He would. So when He says that He has a judgment for us to face that we as each one as believers are going to stand before Him at a judgment seat, then we're going to do that. When He says that we're going to go through a trial by fire, or He's going to judge us as through, through fire, our works, then that's exactly how He's going to do it. When He says that some of the works are going to stand through the fire, then some will. That ought to encourage you. That ought to stir your heart to know that when I obey obey God and I'm walking obediently to Him and I'm fulfilling His will, that He is going to justly honor me and reward me one day for that. But just as equally, if we have been disobedient and disbelieving and treated God's Word as if it were a minor thing and doing God's will as if it were something that I can take it or leave it, it's not that big of a deal then you need to know that on that day, then you're going to suffer loss. And it's going to hurt. It's going to be painful. It's not going to be a thing of joy. Now we see evidences of that, that, and God has revealed that to us here in the life of David and those whom he associated with. And we're going to look at three of those today. I hope that we'll be able to get through these. So first of all, let's turn to... um, Oh man, did I write the chapter down even? I got the verses down here. Well, let's go back and see if we can find it. First Samuel, we know, we know the book we're in. <laughs> got that nailed down pretty good. Um, um, Alright, I'm looking for the chapter where um, he met, met up with Nabal. That's where we're going to start. That's that chapter 24 or 5. Yeah, chapter 25. Turn First uh, Samuel 25. And there, the first person we're going to look at is David's experience with this man, Nabal. Now, we don't have time to go back and really you know, build up towards how David arrived at this point, but I, I don't think we need to necessarily do that here. Because what we want to point out is just that the experience that he had in meeting this man, Nabal, and Nabal's reaction. Now, prior to that, though, we do need to understand, and I have talked about this already, is the, the position of Saul and the position of David. We talked about Saul's position as a man of the flesh. 
Not only was he a man of the flesh, but he, he was a man who acted irrespective of God. That is, he didn't consult God in a matter. He just chose to do it on his own. Another time we found that when God did tell him to do something, he contradicted it and did not fulfill God's purpose or his word as he required him to do. The other thing we saw from the very beginning was that Saul was the people's choice. He was not God's choice for a king. That was the man they wanted. They wanted a man, a king like the nations that surrounded them, and that's exactly what God gave them. Then we saw, and, and we also saw then, he was a, God filled him with his spirit, and it says God gave him another heart, a heart that would enable him to fulfill his kingly responsibilities. When it came to choosing David, he sought for him a man who had a heart for God already. And I think that's a very, very key distinction we need to understand. A person who has a heart for God. And we ought to be looking inwardly at ourselves and asking ourselves truly, do I have a heart for God? And if I do, then that's going to affect how I respond to God and his word. Um, the second thing was, then we looked at uh, several of the characteristics of David and his qualities. Uh, he was also filled with the Spirit, and he was anointed to fulfill the office of king long before he ever actually was able to take the office. And he remained apart from that. Now, there were, I think there were, the reason for that was there are many lessons that God had to teach you and I concerning our position here. And he was very, very careful, you remember, on several occasions not to touch the Lord's anointed. He respected the one whom God had anointed and put in office, even though God had rejected him, but not, had, had not yet removed him from that office. So here we have Nabal now. As he comes to David, and David approaches him, and sent, you know, he sends his men to him about getting some food and some water and some things to eat. Nabal was a wealthy man. It tells us there in verse 2, he says there was a man of Maon whose possessions were in Carmel. This is not Mount Carmel. This is in the southern part of Judah. You have, uh, you have Jerusalem, and then south of there you have Hebron, and then just a little ways, about seven miles south of there, you have Carmel, and then a mile south of Carmel you have this little town or village of Maon. Maon was where Nabal lived, but it says here his possessions were in Carmel. And this is where David's men went to meet with uh, Nabal's men to request some, some sustenance, some help. And um, it says there in verse, verse 3, the kind of man that he was. He was churlish and evil in his doings. Now that word churlish just means he was um, um, a, a, a tenaciously covetous person. That is, And you see that evidence here in just a moment in clinging to what, God, what he had. The things that God had given him, he clung to them as if they were his own. As a matter of fact, over in verse, um, in verse 11, in responding to David's servants, he says, you know, who is this David? You know, like, who's this guy? And then he says, um, shall I then take my bread and my water and my flesh, that is my meat, my flesh, that I have killed for my shearers, and I'm going to give it to David? 
But you know, that's the way the world looks at God's people, the saint of God who is seeking his kingdom and desirous of reigning with him. That's how they are treated. They don't share their things with the man of God. And I don't mean me standing here. I'm talking about the person who is, who is the man of God or, or the woman of God who is seeking to walk with the Lord and fulfill his word and honor him in every way that his word requires of us. So this man Nabal, he wasn't willing to do that. He, and his own riches, his own wealth prevented him, see, from uh, discerning who the true character of David was. But in a moment, we're going to see just the opposite of that with the Adullamites. Whom you remember when David went down to the cave and it says there he gathered about him these 400 men who were debtors, who were the distressed, who were the discontented. You see, they, they, that's what I'm trying to talk to you now about MySpace and YouTube and my, my, I think, is there one called MyFace? Now I made that up. Forget it. Okay. And stuff like that, you know. Uh, what I'm trying to say is, is that they lack discernment. See, they were, they were looking. They're looking for something, but lacking in discernment as to where to get it. But yet when they look to the church, they see it's not there. Nabal did not see it in David. But the Adullamites who were the discontented, the distressed, those who were in debt, those who were hurting, they didn't see it in Saul's kingdom either. It was not available to them. They, were, they saw that, that his kingdom could not provide what they needed. So who did they yoke up with? David. They knew who could meet their needs. And they saw that. And so they gathered themselves around David. But Nabal didn't see that in David. He rejected him, and he allowed his wealth to get in the way of seeing what David had to offer him. Turned him away, as it were. He, re- he rejected the very choice servant, which, by the way, David being a type of Christ. And the same thing happens on a spiritual level in the church today. They reject the very one who can minister to their needs. Um. And of course, if we were to, and I won't take the time now, but if we were to go over to Ephesians chapter 1, it tells us there that our blessings, you know, Nabal's earthly blessings, let me back up just a second, Nabal's earthly blessings came about. Remember, okay, remember we said he's around this surrounding area of Hebron? Do you remember back in the book of Joshua? Well, actually going all the way back to the book of uh, Leviticus, when, when God was giving the assignments to Israel and telling them where they would live and the various tribes and so on, and then where the Levites and the priests, and they would have uh, lands surrounding the various cities. Well, it tells us here in 25, I think it's verse 2, it says that he was of the house of Caleb. Nabal was. Nabal was a distant relative. He was... Um, a beneficiary, as it were, of the, in, the inheritance that Caleb received when he received the land uh, or the city of Hebron and its surrounding areas. Here he was a descendant. He was of the house of Caleb. 
He had great possessions. He had benefited from that. And yet here he was not recognizing who David was and unable to discern and wanting to hang on to what he had. So, why do we say all that? To to make the parallel that we have spiritual blessings as well. We have an inheritance. But our inheritance is in the heavens. Spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. And as we talked about before, just as Saul and David fought their battles of flesh and blood, we fight battles that are of a heavenly nature. It is a spiritual warfare. And we have an inheritance that is in the heavens, just like Nabal had an inheritance. But Nabal allowed his inheritance and his blessings to get in the way of recognizing who David really was. So, and also, we can say that in the church. You know, if you look at the church at Corinth, Paul told them there, and I'm not going to take the time to turn there just for sake of time, but he told them there, he says, this church comes behind in no gift. That's in chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 1. And yet, by the time you get over to chapter 3, he says, you're, you're, you're babes in Christ. He says, you're carnal, in the flesh. And they had need that they be instructed. They had need that they move on to maturity. So, having a gift, having blessings from God, and we do have them, does not guarantee that we're going to react or respond accordingly to God's Word. It still demands obedience on our part. It still demands that we grow and become mature in Christ. So, you know, if you go over to 2 Corinthians, there, Paul, in dealing with this, and of course we always refer to Corinthians as the problem church, but Paul said, you know, you, you people, instead of accepting me as your apostle, you know, you would gladly welcome somebody off the street. In other words, their discernment, their ability for discerning the truth of the gospel that Paul had given them had fallen by the wayside because of their carnality, because of their weakness as babes in Christ. They had not grown and had not become mature. Let's look quickly at another one. How about Jonathan? Do you ever think about Jonathan's relationship with David? It's a very interesting one because he was very loyal to David. Now, he was of flesh and blood with his father Saul, who was king. And yet, he cast his loyalty to David. I mean, he did many, many things for David. I mean, they covenanted together. And they said, you know, our heart, our lives are just like one, soul to soul. We're together. And David even told on his father, Saul. He'd go to David and say, hey, my father Saul's going to do this and this. And David took off and ran. Oops, I, he said that'll happen. Uh, and he took off and you know, went the other way and to escape from the hand of Saul, who was trying to kill him and do away with him. And um, he, he met David secretly out in the woods. You know, shot a little arrow out there to give him a signal trying to let him know what was going on in his life. Especially, you know, with his relationship with, uh, with Saul. And yet, and, well, another thing I need to mention. And he saw, you remember, he told David, he says, I know you've been anointed to be the king and you will be the king. 
And when he covenanted with David, he says, you'll be the king and I'll be second under you. Now, if you follow what we talked about a few weeks ago, the issue of being a son. You remember the important part that sonship played? That a son was the one in line to be the next king. And yet Jonathan understood that. He knew that God had anointed David to be the king. And agreed that he would covenant together to be under David. But this is the scary part. Though he acknowledged all those things and understood them, I can't remember the verse now, it tells us there that when they departed from this little meeting they had, it says David went in back into the woods, but where did Jonathan go? Back to his house, back to his family, back to Saul. He did not separate himself. He did not do, as we find over in Matthew chapter 19, and and, and when Jesus was dealing with the rich young ruler, you remember how after the little incident, he was discussing it with his his disciples, and, and he told them it was difficult for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed by that. And they said, well, how then can anybody be saved? Meaning by that, how then can anybody be saved, experience the kind of salvation that will allow them to enter the kingdom of God? And and, and when he told them that, you know, those who do so, uh, in the regeneration, he says, will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he says, and everyone, everyone who has forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive an hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life, kingdom life. But it required separation. It required here somebody willing to leave family. And Jonathan wasn't willing to do that. And so in the end, what, did, what happened? Jonathan died right alongside his father Saul, and never was able to enter into the Davidic kingdom. He never entered into David's kingdom. Never was able to take possession of what he had covenanted with David to do. That was a family matter. You know, that, that, that kept Jonathan, in my estimation, as I see this, that kept Jonathan from entering into the kingdom and being able to enjoy the benefits and blessings that God had promised to give through David the man of God's own choice. But then I want to look at the, um, I want to look at the life of, of the Adullamites, those that, that David met at the cave uh, of Adullam. Now, the cave of Adullam was, um, oh, it was just, uh, it was out in the wilderness. Uh, I saw a picture of that too in a book I was looking at, and it was rugged. I mean, it was a rugged place. But that's where he had to hide out. That's where he was fleeing from, from Saul. And it tells us uh, there in, in this relationship that he had with the Adullamites in chapter 22. If you'll just turn a couple pages back over there, 1 Samuel 22. It said was there in verse 1, David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave Adullam. And when his brethren and all his father's house heard it, they went down thither to him. And everyone that was in distress and everyone that was in debt and everyone that was discontented gathered themselves unto him and he became a captain over them. Could you just imagine now Saul looking down his nose at David and this little motley group that he had surrounding him? 
You see, his estimation of David was a wholly different one than the way God viewed David and the kind of people that he had surrounding him. And so it tells us there uh, in verse 3, David went uh, thence to, to Mizpah of Moab, and he, well, and he wanted to take care of his parents, and so he got the king of Moab to do that for him. Notice in verse 5, who did David have with him? He had a prophet, the prophet Gad. That shows us something about God's view of David, the man that he chose. He placed a prophet with him. If we were to um, look over to where was it, uh, we find that he has a priest with him as well, uh, Abiathar. He had the priest with him. David consulted the ephod. He consulted God through the priest using the ephod, something which Saul was very neglectful to do. And so... Um, it tells us in, uh, well, let's, let's, let's look at something here. Go back to chapter 13. Keep your place there in 22. Hold a finger there. And look at chapter 13, verse 14. Now, we looked at this verse earlier. This had to do with God's choosing of David. And it says there, but now thy kingdom shall not continue. That's talking about Saul Because of his disobedience, he says, Your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart, and the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people. Well, now let's slip back over to chapter 22 and verse 2. What about those discontented, distressed, and, and people that were in debt and financial straits? He became captain over them. These are the ones that God calls His people. These are my people. And that's who David became captain over. See, I'm just trying to put us in a frame of mind to think about how God views us, how He views our life and our relationship to Him and who God holds in esteem and who He honors. We're looking at how God views those who operate according to the cosmos, the dictates of this cosmos, this world and its system, as opposed to the one who lives their life in accordance with God's word and his will and fulfills his will and how God will honor that person. Look at chapter 24, verses 4 through 6 for a moment. Chapter 24, 1 Samuel. Chapter 24, verses 4 through 6. There it says, And the men of David said unto him, Now these are these, now, you know, we just left chapter 22. So David's got his 400 men with him now. All right, so in view of that now, look at this incidence here. The men of David said unto him, Behold, the day of, of which the Lord said unto thee, Behold, I will deliver thine enemy into thine hand, that thou mayest do to him as it shall seem good unto thee. Then David arose and cut off the skirt of Saul's robe privily or privately, secretly. In other words, do you see here what you know? David's men are trying to encourage him by saying, hey, this is it. Let's go get this guy. Kill him. And David, in a moment of weakness, slips down, cuts off the corner of his robe. All right. And it came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him. He was convicted about it because he had cut off Saul's skirt. And he said unto his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master, the Lord's anointed to stretch forth mine hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. You see, even David's own men and those who were followers of him did not see things his way. 
Now, you need to be viewing this and understanding, thinking your way through this, that David is a type of Christ. The men surrounding him picture you and me and understand their relationship with David and our relationship with Christ. Now look at one more, chapter 26. Chapter 26 is a couple pages over, verses 7, 8, and 9. Another incident. It says there, So David and Abishai came to the people by night, and behold, Saul lay sleeping within the trench, and his spear stuck on the ground at his bolster, but Abner and the people lay round about him. Now watch this. Then said Abishai to David, God hath delivered thine enemy into thine hand this day. Now therefore let me smite him, I pray thee, with the spear, even to the earth at once, and I will not smite him the second time. And David said to Abishai, Destroy him not, for who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Just another incidence here to show his own people, the, the, the men who were following David, did not understand his own heart. They saw something in David that appealed to them, but even at this point, they did not see the heart of David. Now, we continue on. Chapter 30. Look over at chap- chapter 30. <coughs> and verse 6. By the way, when it says the Lord, you know, when David would not touch the Lord's anointed, I think it behooves you and I to be very careful about speaking ill will of the Lord's anointed, whoever that person be. Whatever position that person occupies, no matter what their message is or what they preach, if they're occupying that place, we we need to be careful as well as to what we want to say about the Lord's anointed. Look at verse 6. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him. Wow. See, this was at Ziklag. You know, they'd lost all their possessions, their family, their kids, their wives were all gone, and his men talked about stoning him. But look what it says there. Because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters, but David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. You know, Jonathan even did that. When Jonathan met with David one one time, uh, and we won't take time to look that reference up, but it says there, Jonathan strengthened David in the Lord. But now we find David on his own strengthening himself in the Lord. But that's not all. Look at, uh, um, look at uh, where are we going to go? First, Corinthians, or First Chronicles, I mean. Jump all the way over now. These are those still in the books of the kings at First Chronicles chapter 11. And I want here for us just, this isn't a, a recount, you know, and this is one of those detailed kinds you just, well, when you get to, you're reading through your Bible and you get to these chapters, you just kind of want to, you know, skip over them, move on. Look at verse 15. Now this is recounting David's kingdom here and is, and is recounting the various men and their exploits and so on. So let's look at what has taken place by this time. By the time now that Saul is going to die, David is going to actually assume the leadership of the southern portion, which is Judah. Uh, He says there in verse 15, Now three of the thirty captains went down to the rock to David into the cave of Adullam, and the host of the Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim. 
Now look over at chapter 12, uh, chapter 12 and verse 1. Now these are they that came to David to Ziklag when he yet kept himself close because of Saul, the son of Kish. And they were among the mighty men, helpers of war. Now all of that and all I've tried to say this morning with Nabal, with Jonathan, with the Adolamites, which is these particular men right here, is that you know there are varying degrees of relationship. And yet, you would never have expected the Adolamites to be the ones to be held up by God, to be those in positions of where, where, where they would ultimately be honored, be called mighty men. But yet, that's who the Lord surrounded David with. And the very person, the one person you probably would have expected Jonathan to be the one exalted alongside David because of his depth of loyalty and devotion to David and his, and his love for him. And yet he never even got to see the kingdom. And I think it's purely because he refused to leave his father's own house. He was, he was willing to keep that relationship up rather than unite himself with David and to see the ulti- ultimately, for every person who unites with a man like David, and of course when I say that, I'm speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ, who is willing to take up his cross and follow him, is going to pay the same kind of price that David had to pay. You have to pay the same kind of price that David's men had to pay. There's a time of training, a time of learning, a time of growing, a time of maturing before you can be called a mighty man, a mighty person, a person who's honored before the Lord. But yet in the end, it's going to happen. It will happen. He will fulfill his word and do just what he said. And that's my goal and purpose. That's God's purpose for us in life, is to accomplish that end, to be willing to submit ourselves to God's word, to, as it were, we said, go below the surface, be willing to seek after God, gain the strength, the knowledge, the understanding, the wisdom, the perception that he desires us to have, and then take what he gives us and move on to maturity. Move on to become like a David. Because those are the kinds of people that he's going to call alongside him to share in his future glory, to share in his future rule over the earth. And that's what we ought to be aspiring to. You know, to me, it's like um, somebody standing here and saying that I want to offer you something, and you know that I'm a I'm a, a, a gemnologist. You know, I, I like to hunt for gems and I polish gems and and I bring you into my secret little room and I say show you the very best gem I've ever had polished, brilliant, you know, all those kinds of things. And you know that I am offering you the very best thing that I have. And then for you to turn and walk out and say, you know, treat it as a light thing, as if it's something of no importance, if it doesn't really affect you in any way, or that you should say this one thing, you know, I'm going to do. 
It's like the pearl of great price. I'm going to sell everything I've got. I'm going to do everything within my power that I have in my life to go pursue that because I want that. That's what I want. Do you think that that's going to honor me if I'm the giver? Well, it's the same way with with God and what He has offered to give you and I through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. To co-rule with Him in His Son's kingdom. There's nothing higher, nothing better than He could ever have offered us. And so it behooves us not to treat that lightly, but to lay everything down that we have and go after it. Seek it with all of our heart. Let's pray. Father, we do want to thank you for all the things you've given us, the wonderful, great promises you've given us in your word, and the the joy and the privilege that's really ours to seek after those things, to receive the love of God into our own hearts. And how we, Lord, just want to lay our lives before you this morning as we begin a new year. We're looking at, at, at beginning uh, a new year of 2007 for us. And I pray that each one of us would lay our hearts bare before you afresh and anew and commit ourselves to serving you and seeking after those things which you desire us to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, we'll just sing a brief song of invitation. Just making it uh, available for any of the uh, one here who may have a need or you have a desire on your heart, you'd like to join or unite with this church, then we want to welcome you to do that. Number 349. <clears throat> and I'm going to do as I've done, never in my Sunday school class, but we're going to sing a duet. We've done that many, we've done that many times, right? Well, okay. I'm calling it singing. We're going to sing it. Yeah. trust you will pray for those that are out and sick and know like Brother Walt is not feeling well and um, you all have a good week.